thank you for um, having me back. It's, it's, I think it's been about a year since I was, I was here last, and uh, it, it's a privilege to, uh, to, to come and, um, as someone who loves the Word of God and to, to preach and to, to, to proclaim the gospel. It's always a, a, uh, an enjoyable phone call when I see Pastor Bob's number pop up and, and hey, can you help me out for a couple weeks? So you're stuck with me for two weeks, so if it gets bad today, it's just going to get worse next week, so... Let's just uh, put the pitchforks and torches away and let's soak in the Word of God. Um, you know, we just came before, uh, came out of 4th of July, so a lot of patriotic things. And I heard some, some, some political talk uh, in your Bible study earlier this morning. And the phrase, in God we trust, is probably um, uh, something you think of and it spawns patriotic uh, thoughts. Um, but it's that denial in God we trust um, that is uh, in the church today, and it is, I believe, at the core of a variety of problems um, that leads to false conversions and self-righteousness and turns uh, and creates modern-day Pharisees um, who lack uh, a saving faith in Jesus Christ and turn into a stumbling block to those outside the church. As an evangelist, uh, a brother, some brothers and myself, um, we have a ministry called Appalachia Cry Ministries, and our focus is street evangelism, street open-air preaching, and, and I can tell you, by and large, the people I meet on the streets, I, I can show as evidence of this claim I just made. So our text today is going to be in uh, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, Luke 18 9 through 14. When you get there, say amen. If you're not there, say I need Bible tabs. <laughs> this is a, uh, a wonderful teaching our Lord uh, gave. And um, it may be a uh, little bit of a hard pill for us to swallow in the church. But sometimes um, the best medicine is the hardest to take. And so uh, hopefully this will uh, help and, uh, admonish and encourage the church today. Let's read and then we'll pray. In Luke chapter 18 and in verse 9, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Oh God. Would you have mercy on me this morning and allow me to rightfully divide your word, hide me behind the cross, 
Let your text speak to your people this morning. Father, leave us nowhere to hide and nowhere to find comfort, but to deal with these truths and to turn to you for resolution, to turn to you for healing, to turn to you for an understanding, Father, of how we can better represent the church, your son, and ultimately for our benefit and others around us, understand salvation, understand justification by faith, that that precious doctrine, God, would be a reality in our minds and our hearts this morning. We ask this in Christ's name, and amen. Amen. This passage, uh, as many in, in, in Scripture, speaks to the doctrine of justification by faith. Now, many of you, every day, do acts of faith. You woke up this morning and you had faith when you flipped the switch, the light was going to come on. And, and if you rode into here, you had faith that your brakes were going to work on your car. And you, you, uh, you, you have faith on every single thing that you do is a measure of faith. And so today I want to talk about justification by faith, that in God alone that we trust, and that how will we without righteousness, here's the question, how can we without righteousness be declared righteous? Because we have none on our own. And, and we see a beautiful illustration of this in the text. So we're going to pick this part one by one. Let's start with verse 9. Verse 9, he says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, the first thing I want you to pay attention to is Jesus is speaking to a very specific audience here. A very specific group. And by description, we can identify them as the same group Jesus was addressing a few chapters earlier in Luke 16 and 15. Who Those who justified themselves before the people blind to the fact that God knows their heart. So as this was a message to the Pharisee, what I see in the modern American evangelical church today, this I believe should be a, a message for us to receive as the church. So, so, so I want you to, to, to see it through that lens. That many times, many times out on the streets I hear this all the time. And you may have said it. Well, God knows my heart. I'm not that bad. God knows my heart. He knows my heart. Uh, it reminds me of, of, of not too long ago, uh, one, of the, one of the evenings we were out on the streets there in the Clarksburg area, there was an a, a oil and frack uh, field, oil field worker that came by. He was from New York City. And he had come down from Morgantown because I guess there was no room to stay at the mission there. We minister um, across the street from the local mission uh, once a week there, one of our, one of our times out. And, and to hear this man talk, it was, well, I love God. I believe in God, and He knows my heart. And He was relying on His goodness. He was relying on how much He loves God, and how much this and that. And it turns out as the conversation went further out, He was depending on His own works to get Him to heaven. He was depending on His own works and trusting in His heart. And those who trust in their heart are trusting in, the, in a very dangerous thing. Because 
It's 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 this 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 God knows my heart. God knows my heart that has crept into modern day Christianity in America that softens the blow of submission to the King of Kings. That we submit our lives to God, and and it's a nicety in the church that has allowed themselves and those who are trying to evangelize um, that they believe that. It, it, this this belief of trusting in your heart it has no uh, no no support in scripture at all nowhere in scripture can you go and find somebody secure in their salvation or somebody uh, trusting in god because god knows their heart you can't find that language anywhere in scripture you can find what god uh, knows their heart to be and, and and we see that we see that in jeremiah 17:9 here's why you don't trust your heart what's jeremiah 17:9 say Jeremiah 79, the heart is so deceitfully wicked that who can know it? Our hearts are wicked from, 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 from youth. We're evil from youth, says Genesis 8.21. So your heart being deceitfully wicked, and when someone comes over and says, and says, God knows my heart, you're trusting, if you're trusting in your salvation, if you're trusting in your eternity because of what you well, God knowing your heart, you're trusting in the very thing, friend, that's going to damn you on the day you stand before God in judgment. And that's not what we want. That's not what we want to teach these people, whether it's in your workplace or on the street or your families. When you're sharing the gospel that we're all called to do, evangelism is, is not a gift, it's a command. Different people are gifted in different ways of evangelism, but it's a command. Jesus says, go therefore. Go, tell of the good news, the gospel. And so we want, I, I, want to, I want to see this, that, that, that we don't want to trust in ourselves. And, and that's a common thought here in a modern day is God knows my heart. We don't, we don't want to trust in that. And here's the other thing we have to, to, to get a hold of is in, in that same light of trusting in ourselves, we have to understand man's evil nature. And this doesn't get big crowds, this doesn't fill church pews, and it doesn't make television. But it's the truth that we need. And I was listening to some of the talk in the earlier Sunday school. I'll tell you why America is where it is. As the church goes, so goes the world. And when the gospel was stopped preaching in the churches, when they stopped preaching the gospel and they come with these sugar-coated, softball, feel-good messages that convict nobody and puff everybody up as they walk out the door, that's why you have the country you have today. God has turned it over to yourself. He, he, that's, his, that's the evidence of His judgment. When God wants to judge a nation, as John Calvin says, He'll give them a wicked ruler. I don't care what side of the political aisle you're on. There's nothing Christian about the last handful that have been in there. So we don't trust in a politician. And that's the trap a lot of churches. Well, if we could just get so-and-so into office. Forget them. Romans 1.16, it is the power of God into salvation. I trust the future of this country and my family and, and everybody else to God, to His sovereignty, to His power. Because every other change is on the outside in and not from the inside out. And we have to deal with this fact that man has an evil nature. And what we don't understand is sin is not something that's outside of us. And sometimes we get too close to it or we participate in it. Sin is part of our very DNA. Look back in Genesis, uh, Genesis 6-5, I believe, where, where God says man's thoughts is just continually evil. And understand, God didn't crucify sin on the cross. God doesn't throw sin into hell. 
God crucified His Son on the cross in our place. And people who die outside of a relationship, a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone end up in hell, not their sin. So we have to get a hold of this. That when God crucified His Son, that's why it was so bad. In in 2 Corinthians 5 it says, He who knew no sin became sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. That God poured His wrath out on Christ. It, it, we, we, we are not saved because Roman soldiers beat up Jesus. It was horrific, not, and it was by that blood we are saved. But we are saved because God's wrath was satisfied. And only Jesus Christ could satisfy that. Only Jesus Christ could absorb all of God's wrath. He didn't become a sinner. What that means is our sin was laid upon Him. And God treated Jesus the way we should be treated. In exchange, they call it the great exchange, we get the best of Christ as He takes the worst of us. That if we turn and put our faith and trust in Christ, okay, what happens is we His righteousness is laid upon us. Now there's nobody that becomes righteous, but we are seen as righteous. When we stand before God, if we have a saving relationship with Christ, He sees Christ's righteousness accounted to us. To, all, to, to, to us. So, so we get that. And so we, we have to understand that, that this sin is, is a very part of us. And these Pharisees in here, um, they're, they're counting on their, their self-worth. It's all about you know, how they can do and what they do and what they look like and their works and so forth. And, so, and not only do they trust in themselves, but we're going to see here in a second the reality about their heart in verse 9. It says here, it says in that verse, it says, they treated others with contempt. With contempt. These Pharisees treated them with contempt. This is the same word, uh, th- th- this is the same word used when, when Herod treats our Lord that way. It says he was uh, treated with contempt and mocking. The contempt here, it means despised. So we see that these are people who have murderous hearts. And I say murderous hearts because Jesus says, if you've ever been so mad at somebody, you've already committed murder without even doing the act. It's all about the issue of the heart. Just like if you're walking down the street and you're having lustful thoughts about somebody of the opposite sex. Jesus says you've already committed adultery. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes it to the nth degree. It's an issue of the heart. Anybody still want to trust their heart? Anybody still want to say God knows my heart? He does know it and that's a, that's a dangerous thing for us. That is a dangerous thing. Why would we want God to know our heart? How can we trust our heart? If we have any hope, again, like I started, it must be in God we trust. In God we trust for our salvation. That faith is where we find our justification. In the next verse, in verse 10, and he starts into the parable, and he says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, I want you to pay attention to the contrast here. These are two very different people. And Jesus is focusing on a specific group that he's targeting here. And, and you'll see uh, not only who he's talking about, but also see uh, those whom can come in right standing with him to salvation. We're going to see two groups here, two, two different ones. And at the end of the time here, you're going to see that as usual, Jesus does not say what's expected from the cultural norm. Okay, Jesus... There's a very interesting book, if you have the time to read, you're looking for an a, a interesting read, it's not a long read, it's called the G, I think it's called The Jesus You Didn't Know, I think is the name of it, uh, by Pastor John MacArthur, and it, it, it chronicles Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees 
all the way through Scripture. And, and, and I'm going to tell you, Jesus was always direct. He didn't worry about the offense like, like, like so, many, so, many, so many today. Are, well, you can't say that to people. They'll get offended. The gospel's offensive. If the gospel you speak is not scandalous, then it's no longer the gospel. It, 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 it is. And, and, you know, true love, listen, I, I hear this all the time on the streets. Well, I don't like what you guys are doing, and I don't think it's very loving what you're doing. Now, granted, it's done wrong a lot, but, but I don't think it's very loving. Listen, true love warns. It warns. If I saw your house on fire coming down the road at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm not going to worry about what night clothes you're wearing, what your hair looks like, what your breast smell likes. I'm going to go pound on your door and say, There's a, your house is on fire, get out. True love warns. We are speaking about people's eternities here. And my question, I've often asked Christians, is how hateful do you have to be as a Christian to know that there is a real place called hell? And to know that that place, just like heaven, is for eternity. And to know the torturing, the gnashing of teeth, and the no relief of the pain and the suffering. To know that that lie ahead for somebody who doesn't know Christ as Savior. And you sit there and don't say a word because you're afraid you might be embarrassed. Friends, you know why people don't share their faith? They don't share their faith for the same exact sin that got the devil kicked out of heaven. It's their pride. They may look funny. They may make fun of them. I might forget a word here or there. People are so worried. Christians are so worried about their pridefulness. Their prideful heart is so influential, it stops them from, from, from sharing the gospel with people. But Jesus, he didn't waver. He was direct and right to the point. And he's targeting these people who, as Scripture says in verse 9, trusted in themselves. That's who he's targeting. They're self-righteous. And these people, these Pharisees, they have no mercy. They have no grace. They have no sympathy. They're arrogant. And they're self-serving. And friends, can can I just be so bold to say that I describe many churches today in America. Many, many, many churches. I just described them. And you're going to see how that's a stumbling block for the outside world here in a second. The other group that is represented here by the tax collector that you're going to see is the group that you should strive to be in. It's where we want to be. It's the ones that are humble. They're broken. They're, they're, they're honest. They're yearning for a Savior. They're pleading for eternal life. Key word, pleading. Key thought, God owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. God could condemn the whole world and still be just as he is in heaven. He owes us nothing. He does it surely out of his love. He does it out of his mercy. And he does it, he, he, he does it for his glory. We are created. Why are you here? Why is anybody created? We were created for the glory of God. Created for the glory of God. And he does it because he loves us. He loves to save. He's a good God. And it's that second group that trusts in God. The Pharisee, in verse 11, it says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now I want you to see something, if you can picture this. Uh, sister was talking about picturing scripture and, 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 and the imagination. And I, I'm a creative, I love the, the thing. But this, this Pharisee, get this posture. This Pharisee, he's standing there by himself. Now historical writings and Bible history and so forth, 
teaches us that it was not unusual for people to pray standing up. It was a common thing, okay? But the context we see it here in this group is Jesus is calling them out, and it's understood like Jesus says in Matthew 6, 5, where in Matthew 6, 5, which is, he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Matthew 6, 5. That's the kind of standing up Jesus is referring to here in, in, in Luke chapter 18, verse 11. And what's interesting is when he, Jesus offers that rebuke in Matthew 6, 5, where's that at? That's right before he gives us the pattern of how to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Many people pray the Lord's Prayer. There's nothing wrong with praying the Lord's Prayer. But praying the Lord's Prayer as it is in Scripture, you know, our Father, that's just the same as repeating Scripture. That's not a prayer Jesus gave them to pray. It was, he was teaching them how. What did they say? Teach us how to pray. And the Lord's Prayer, as we call it there in, 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 in Matthew 6, is more or less a framework of how to pray to God. And there's some really good resources. Uh, if you look up R.C. Sproul and, uh, or John MacArthur, either one, they have some great resources on Jesus' pattern for prayer. And it takes the, the Lord's Prayer and shows us how to pray. You know, our Father. So we, we acknowledge... You know, who, we acknowledge God who's in heaven is it exalted and, and, and we just use it as a pattern. I think the Lord's Prayer would be more better defined in John 17, um, but that's, an, that's another sermon unto itself. And so we, we see this, Jesus is rebuking them. Don't, don't stand and pray like these hypocrites, he says. And he said, and so the man in this parable was praying and he was praying to be seen and he was praying to be heard. Because he was full of self-righteousness. He was full of, I'm going to do this this way. I'm going to earn my way to God. Look at me, God. Look at me. I'm praying. Look how holy I am. Look at me. And he's, he's puffed up with pride. And, and, and this wasn't a prayer to God. This wasn't a prayer to our King. This wasn't a prayer to our Savior. It was a prayer to self. And we find that, that no praise at all for God here. Now look at this for a second. Verses 11 and 12, read those two together. It says, the Pharisee standing. What's the Pharisee? This is how he's praying. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men, extortioners and unjust and adulterers, or even like that tax collector. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Does that sound like a prayer to God? Or somebody making his self-righteous case of, of, of why God should see him in a certain light? And so that's what we have there. We, there's no praise for God at all. It's, it, it's, it's arrogant. It's self-congratulatory. Noise is what it is. And there's no trust in God, but a trust in a sinful person's filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6 tells us. You want to earn your way to heaven? Good luck. Because God says your best deeds that you can do are filthy rags before a holy and righteous king. You can go feed as many people as you can. And you can clothe the poor. You can save a little child about to run out in front of a, an 18-wheeler. And you can pull somebody out of a house that's burning down and do all those things your entire life. And if you die without repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone, you'll still die and go to hell. You cannot earn your way. Now, do we do good things? Absolutely. But we do good things because we are Christian, not to become a Christian. The best example I, I've always given, and I use it all the time, is Germex. Does Germex disinfect your hands to become Germex? Or does it disinfect your hands because it is Germex? 
You see the difference there? Do we do good deeds to become a Christian or do we do good deeds because we are a Christian and we want to reflect the love and the mercy of our Savior, Christ Jesus? That's why. You can't earn. Now, this, I'm going to say something here and this is very, um, I I just need to say it because it's just so true and it's caused more people to stumble It's hurt people, and I believe it's driven a wedge into what we see on the national stage today between culture and the church. Um, And I'm just going to say it as gracefully as as I can. Beginning of of this message, I told you that when we don't trust in God and we have this deficient mindset, it can be a stumbling block to those outside of the church. Now, if we truly understand and we truly humble ourselves... And see the rebuke Jesus has given in verse 11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers are like this tax collector. You see what this Pharisee's doing? He's making his case and saying, at least I'm not like those guys. And he points out some of their sin. Can I just be real with you for a minute? And bring to you the reality of what I see on the streets? The church is the Pharisee. Let me, let me read this to you with substituting some words in. And I'm not changing scripture. I'm just saying. Just, the church standing by themselves prayed, God, I, we thank you that we are not like other people. We're not extortioners. We're not unjust. You see where I'm going with this? This is a rebuke to the church. And it is this very reason why the church has such a hard time reaching those lost in the sin of homosexuality. Because people will sit in the American evangelical church today and they'll say, well, yes, I'm a sinner, but at least I'm not. Sound familiar? Sound like we just read? At least I'm not a homosexual. At least I'm not transgender. At least I'm not, insert your sexual perversion here. Granted, it's sin. And no, we we don't accept that sin. It's flat out sin. It's an abomination to God. But here's why the church has a hard time reaching those lost in that sin. And yes, they are lost in that sin. Here's, Here's why the church has a hard time. Because, now hold on. Pick up your toe. Pull your toes back a little bit. This is the same sin of the deacon who's, who's having an affair with somebody else. This is the same sin of the pastor who's struggling with, with, with pornography. This is the same sexual sin as two people who aren't married, but the church gives them a free pass. The same sexual sin, the same sexual perversion as those lost in homosexuality. But the church acts like a Pharisee and says, at least that's not my sin. And those people want nothing to do with the church. And rightfully so, I wouldn't want anything to do with the church either. You see that. Now, we don't accept it. No, 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 no. We, we, we stick to God's word, but we love them. We, 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 we love them into the church, lest we be hypocrites. Okay? We, 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 we need to, to, to love them in because the church today has become the Pharisee in this story. Because there's, there's not trust in God, but it's trust. Think about it. Think about what you're saying. When you're saying, at least that's not my sin. You see what you're doing with that. Listen, these people that are lost in this, as one pastor says, there's two events that have happened in our lifetimes that I think have sped up the wrath of God in the end times. There's two things that have happened. And he said one was Roe v. Wade where they authorized the slaughter of innocent babies. It's murder. It's murder. It's murder. Don't call yourself a Christian and support abortion. It's murder. It's flat out murder. Now, 
The second thing that happened most recently was when the court ruled on, on changing traditional marriage. And I got news for the justices who probably got more money and law degrees than I do. I can tell you something simple. Man didn't, didn't create marriage. Man doesn't get to redefine marriage. God gave it simply in Scripture, a man and a woman, all the way back to creation. It's a beautiful thing when understood rightly through the Word of God. But that said, we have enough problem with culture. Well, you're just one of those church people. You're just one of those Christian people. You just hate. Listen, I have homosexual friends. They know where I stand on this. I love them as human beings, but I love them enough to tell them the truth. That friend, if you die in this sin, if you die unrepentant with no faith in Christ, it's going to be an eternal tragedy for you. We have to love them enough to tell them that. But when the church takes the position of the Pharisee, as in this parable, we can't reach him. It's a stumbling block to those outside the church. Like I said, as the church goes, so goes the world. As the church goes, so goes the world. Because there's more power in the Word of God than any politician or any act of Congress or any bill of this or amendment to that. There's only power in the Word of God to truly make a lasting difference and a change. And and church, we have to understand and we have to see this. We have to receive this. We have to confess where we have fallen short and fallen into this self-righteous trap. Ask God to forgive us, clean us up, and get us back out there with mercy and hope and the love of the gospel to these people. That's what they need. Not a self-righteous Pharisee saying, well, I do this and I do that and I go to church here and I give this and I, I do that. Lest we forget the sewer God has pulled us out of. The church, and here, here's the real tragedy in this whole thing. The church offends the gospel in two ways. When the church becomes a self-righteousness... There's two ways the church offends the gospel. The first, it denies the gospel. It denies the gospel. When the church assumes the role of the Pharisee, it goes against the very foundation of the gospel of Christ that we may only obtain righteousness through faith in Christ and Christ alone. So we deny the gospel God's given us. We deny it. Consider Paul's words. This, this justification by faith is what we see in Philippians 3. And look what Paul says. He says, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on what? Faith. In God we trust. We trust God. Our justification of righteousness comes from faith. It, 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 it's faith in God. And there is nothing, there, there's no good in any of us worth saving outside of relationship with Christ. Listen, that's a hard saying. And, 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 and let, me, let me put a footnote here and say, everybody created in the image of God, right? And in that sense, created in the image of God, we have worth, dignity, value, and purpose created in the image of God. However, Christian, before you start getting too puffed up, don't think that there is Absolutely something worth saving you that God had to save you because of your worth. Listen, in Romans 3, in, in, in Romans 3, I want you to just real quick here. Romans 3, it says, in Romans 3, it says, For we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen to this. We're justified by His grace as a gift. Paul appears to be double speaking because grace, gift, it's kind of like, well, they're kind of one and the same. And if you flip back in John chapter 15, there's a scene where Jesus says, they have hated me without cause. 
The original Greek word we get the phrase without cause is the same Greek word we get the phrase by His grace as a gift. In other words, God sent His Son to save us without cause. Surely because He's love and He's mercy and He wants to save us. Surely for His own glory. Not that we merited that. Who are we to stand before the potter and tell, tell Him what we deserve? Who are we to do that? We, we, we are saved, as Paul says, our righteousness comes not from the law, but through faith in Christ and Christ alone. And that righteousness is, is given to us. It's imputed to us when we come to faith in Christ. When we're born again, Jesus says in Mark 1.15, that we repent, we turn from our sins, we turn to God, and we put our faith and trust in Jesus and who He says He is and what He said He's done. Without Christ and Christ's work, And Christ's righteousness, without that, every one of us in this room are nothing but a pile of dead bones in a dry valley. That's all we are. That's all we are. That's all we are. Okay? So the gospel is denied. And the second thing that happens when the church takes the role of the self-righteous Pharisee, the gospel is perverted. It's perverted. When the church resumes the role of the Pharisee, it promotes the idea that the gospel and Christianity are nothing but a bunch of rules that must be followed in order to obtain the end goal eternal life. Let me give you a practical real world example. Let's say we're here in service and a young lady walks in the back door and comes and sits down. Let's say she's dressed in a, in a, in a blouse that probably has too deep of a v-neck and maybe a skirt that's too short. Church, we have two options here. We can play the role of the self-righteous Pharisee and wag our finger and look down our nose and say, you shouldn't dress like that. You shouldn't cause men to do this, this, and this. And she's going to walk right back out here thinking, okay, Jesus, Christianity, a bunch of laws, I got it. Or we can love her and share the gospel. Now, when I say the gospel of repentance and faith, of law and grace, not Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, that's not the gospel. But we share the gospel with her and we let the Holy Spirit change her from the inside out. And when that transformation happens and she's born again, guess what? You're not going to have to tell her how to dress. Because she'll have that conviction inside. One of the evidences of salvation is you can't stay, you can't stay comfortable in your sin. You can't do it. But, but, but that will change her. And we understand that Christ saved you because you were dead in your sin. Ephesians 2.1 you know, did you ever pick up on that? When it says you, Paul says you were dead in your sin. Dead men don't talk. Dead men don't walk. Dead men don't ask for help. Spiritually, you were dead in your sin. It was the richness of God's mercy in Ephesians 2.4 that made us alive together in Christ, Ephesians 2.5. Further, it was by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace, through faith, and not of your own doing, it is a gift of God and not a result of works. Why? So nobody in here can boast. Contrary to what our Mormon or or Jehovah Witness people that we know would teach, nobody's going to go to heaven and hold their hand out and say, God, thanks for doing your part. I did mine. It's not going to happen. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Alone. And, and Christian, and, 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 and maybe I'm just the only one in here, but I have to guard against this. Sometimes you just, you know, you're, you're walking with the Lord and you're appreciative. And just every once in a while, or some of us more than others, that pride will well up in you. And you'll be like, yeah, I've got this salvation. And, I feel, and you feel this pride welling up. 
And, I, and, 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 and a scripture that helps me deal with that pride and may help you is 1 Corinthians 4, 7. In short, what do you have that you have not been given? You didn't obtain it yourself. You didn't earn it. You weren't worth it. It's all of God. What do we have room to boast? This is why Paul tells us, so that no one may boast. And you end up like this Pharisee here. In verse 12, the, the Pharisee continues, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know what the fastest growing religion is today in America and the world? Especially in America? The religion of self. Selfism. I, me, my, get all I can, can all I get, sit on the can. That's, it's all about me. It's selfism. That's the fastest growing religion. And so our self-righteous now, our self-righteous, when you, when you fall into this, I, I equate it to a rotten corpse in a field of flowers. That's how much you stick out when you come into this self-righteousness to this Pharisee. Look what the Pharisee did. In 11 and 12, do you realize in two verses he refers to himself five times? Five times in two verses. This wasn't a prayer to God. This wasn't about Christ. This wasn't about the cross. This wasn't about nothing, nothing but himself. The same kind of self-centeredness that is in the church today that does not trust in God, but in self. In self. In self. Friends, let's not be like that Pharisee. And in verse 13, praise God, we're done with the Pharisee. In verse 13, here comes Jesus gives you the other side. But the tax collector... But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know that there's really no, no biblical support for the sinner's prayer, as many tent revivals and all this other craziness and silliness that goes on outside the church. There's no such prayer that saves anybody. This is the closest thing you'll ever find to a sinner's prayer in all of Scripture right here. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. You see the difference already? Here we have this Pharisee standing there. He's proud. His chest puffed out. He's, I do this. I do that. I do this. I'm not like him. I'm not like her. I'm not like him. Or this guy back here. And then look what we have here. We have a tax collector. He won't even raise his head. He won't even raise his head. He's standing far off. And right away we see his humbleness. We see an honest profession that he knows he has no right to be in the presence of God Almighty. No right whatsoever. He stands off. He's broken. Friend, have you been broken? Has the Holy Spirit broken you? Has He brought you to repentance? Or are you just sitting trusting because you feel good about yourself and all the good things that you do? Do you no longer trust in yourself? Are you trusting in God and God alone? Have you been brought low before God? Have you been brought low before God? I'll read you a quote from the great Martin Lloyd-Jones. I don't know if you know who that is, but fantastic uh, uh, preacher. He says, the nearer a man gets to God, the greater he sees his sin. The nearer a man gets to God, the greater he sees his sin. Friends, you can't move close to the perfect Savior without 
without, nat- with, with, without realizing your sinful nature. And it's not to beat you up. It's to bring you low. To make God look even more glorious than, than what we can express. Just like a diamond shines the brightest against the black velvet that the, that the jeweler puts it on when you're going to buy that ring. Our Savior, our God, His glory, His righteousness, His salvation shines brightest against the backdrop of our sin. The nearer a man gets to God, the greater he sees his own sin. So you come, you, 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 you come in this place humble. He, he, he comes in. And, and, and he said, not only do we see this by the location, but look at his expression. Unlike the arrogant Pharisee who's congratulating himself, this tax collector, he's broken. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes. And this is what it looks like when a truly repentant sinner comes to Christ. That's what it looks like. And it's not what we find in most churches today. It's a sinner who's broken over his trespasses against God, who knows and feels and believes the truth of their condition standing before God. He knows his only hope lies in God who he can trust. It's his only option. His only option. His only option. Quite a few times on the street I, I see, see people coming up and Oh, I believe in Jesus. I know God. He's this and that. And I gave my life to Him. Some of them even get baptized and everything else. And you know what we find? We start just asking questions, just general questions. That they still, they have lost their salvation. Look here, in 16 inches from their head to their heart, they've lost it. And you know what that road's called that they haven't found yet? It's a road called repentance. One guy came up and he was all excited. He went and he prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, whatever he did. Got baptized, and we were just kind of, we prayed for him. We were talking with him. We asked him about, so, so how did you come to repentance and faith? Well, I ain't done that repentance thing yet. I, I don't know what that is. And churches are pushing these people out there. They're justifying these people in their sin. And these people die, and it's not going to end well for them. We, we need to be careful, friends. We need to, 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 to show an unbeliever that the, 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 they, they need a Savior. They, 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 they can't earn this. They can't just do these things. So we see this location and his posture reflecting a right understanding of what it means to be broken before God. What does that mean? What does that look like? We see the, the picture of it here. And what does he do? Now this is interesting. It says he beat his breast. What's that tell you? It says he beat his breast. An interesting thing I discovered when studying was that Luke is the only author in the Gospels that records this. No other, none of the other Gospels record this. He be, but you think back to Luke uh, chapter 23, or, or, or forward rather to the cross, in Luke 23, 47 and 48, we see, this, we see this phrase again. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place after Jesus, they saw Jesus crucified, they realized what they'd done. What's it say? It says they returned home beating their breast. It's the only two times in Scripture you'll see this phrase. And Luke is the only one that records it. And let me just point out as a side note, who was the first one to recognize Jesus on the cross was, was who he says he was. Wasn't a Pharisee, wasn't a self-righteous, he was a centurion. 
The centurion was the first to see Christ for who he was. And when the Roman soldier did, we see the reaction of the so-called righteous and just people. They returned home, it says, beating their breasts. Uh, This is a sign of extreme sorrow and extreme anguish because these people were beating their breasts. These are the same ones that were just yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And now the reality of what they did had set in. They beat their chest recognizing, now here it is, the wickedness of their hearts. The wickedness of their hearts and the extreme sorrow that was causing them. They're beating the very part Jesus describes in Matthew 15, 19, when he says, for out of the heart, Jesus says, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Still want to trust your heart for your salvation? We see his location, his posture, his anguish, and now we hear it. Now we hear the audible. We hear in surround sound, high definition. We hear a broken person coming to Christ. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Friends, have you you come to that point? Where you realize your brokenness in sin and you've cried out to God to save you. You've cried out, God be merciful to me a sinner. Understand that this, uh, something I, I came across from a Bible teacher here when I was studying this is that this is not the same merciful like in Luke 18.38 where we see uh, the blind guy cries out. Remember he says, Jesus son of David have mercy on me. This is not the same kind of word for mercy here. This is this is. It's saying in a sense in the original Greek, Jesus, apply your atonement to me. When he says, have mercy on me, a sinner, it's crying out to God, apply, Jesus, your atonement to me. Apply it to me. That Christ, you know, we see Christ comes to the lost and there's evidence of brokenness over sin and there's a recognition of a helplessness this person has. God loves to save bad people. He loves to save bad people. He loves to. And that's the hope that is is out there. That is out there. He knows there's nothing He can do to appease God. There's nothing He can offer. There's nothing He can do to obtain that right standing before God. And He asks for Christ's righteousness to be applied to Him so that He may stand. Because it's in God He trusts. Not in His works. It's in God He trusts. It's that justification by faith. And what's Jesus say about this man who's standing off, who's broken? You can see his eyes are probably welled up with tears and they're coming down his face. His head is hung. He's beating his breast. He's crying out for mercy. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And what's Jesus say about this man? He says, I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified. Rather than the other. In verse 14, he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. Amen. He drives the point home. Jesus tells the self righteous, arrogant crowd it was this man and the worst of worst, hated by society, who is now guiltless, who is now innocent, who is now acquitted and cleared of all charges. Listen, this is good news. This is good news. We, we had a, a young man playing the role. He came up. We were talking to his girlfriend. She was sitting there. 
And he kept walking by the street. He would come by and take a cigarette from her and walk up. A couple remarks he made about religion and pushing religion on people. Because nobody wants to hear the gospel on the streets. We continued ministering to her. The tank top, the ball cap backwards, the tattoos, the God-hating uh, mindset. He, he gives, listen, if you're, if you're not a Christian, you're a God-hater. I know that's hard, but Romans 1.30 says you hate God. But he was in that mindset and the hard, the, 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 the hard, and at one point he came back and whispered in her ear while she was sitting there talking to, to us. He said, don't come, uh, I have to give you the edited version, <laughs> but he says, don't come back with this explicative, explicative religion. You know, I don't explicative believe in this explicative religion, Jesus, explicative, explicative. He walked off again. About half hour, 45 minutes comes by. We're still ministering to this girl. We don't do the, the, the flu shot mentality that has gotten the church into trouble. We don't have somebody pray a prayer, tell them they're saved, and send them off. We minister. We go through Scripture. and We labor with these people till God be formed in them. And he came back, and he sat down. And I asked him, I said, what, what do you think of this? His name was Michael. He just kind of saw me out of the corner of his eye and just turned his head. Literally turned his head. I mean, it's as if you're talking to me. Just turned his head. So I waited there for a minute, and he turned back and made eye contact. I knew I got him. I said, so what do you think of what we're talking about here today, about Jesus and some of the stuff, these conversations you've overheard? He said, well, he said, he says, um, he said well, I don't know if I'm an atheist or not, but I, I, don't, I don't believe in this, this, this you know, explicative, expl- I, don't, I don't believe in this God you guys are talking about, the Bible and this and that. So we started talking, and, and, and the conversation started going. I asked him about morality, where he gets right and wrong from. Because the problem with the atheist, they can't give you objective morality. If you're an atheist, you believe in evolution, we're just bags of biological goo bumping into each other. So if you're an atheist, what's wrong with me walking up and just putting a gun to your head and shooting you? What's wrong with one bag of biological goo poking a hole in another bag of biological goo? They have to steal from the Christian worldview to make sense of what they believe. To say something is right or wrong, they have to steal from our worldview. So we started walking through that and talking, and eventually we, we were going through the gospel a little bit, and we start talking about hell and the eternity. And he finally, he, he stood up. He just stood up. And I didn't know whether he was going to cuss, swing, or what he was going to do. You never know what these guys, some of them are strung out on meth and heroin. You never know what they're going to do. And he looks at me and he says, I'll talk to you, but not in front of these people, if you want to walk with me. Still didn't know what he wanted to talk about. So off up the street we went. This is, and, 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 um, so we're standing there talking. And he looks at me. And what I saw in him was this tax collector. Immediately. This is the first thing I thought of. He looks at me. Now mind you, just, you know, his tattoos, his hat, his front and the muscle guy. His eyes start welling up with tears. And he says... I don't know about this God and I don't know everything about what you're talking about. But I know if there is this God, he's going to send me straight to hell because I know he knows the things I've thought, the things I've done. And right there, buddy. So we go into the gospel. We stood on that corner for probably another 20, 30, 40 minutes talking, maybe 20 minutes talking. I got to see, I had the privilege of witnessing, not me, not my cleverness, not my knowledge, not my understanding, I got to see the Holy Spirit breaking this guy. It was just breaking this hard heart. An hour ago, he came by cussing at us. 
was God hating. I don't want anything to do with it. Here I am with this guy on a street corner right now, and his eyes are almost swollen shut. He's crying so much. God was breaking his heart of stone and giving him a heart of flesh. The power of the gospel to those who would believe unto salvation. He took on the form of the tax collector in our story. Broken. Wouldn't hold his head up. And when I looked at him, and I'll tell you the same thing I told him, because I don't know what everybody's, anybody's spiritual condition is. I said, friend, you cannot outsend the mercy of Christ. And it looked like the whole world had just come off his shoulders. He understood, maybe for the first time, that there's a God that loves him. There's a God that wants to save him. And that scripture says that any who call in the name of the Lord, he will not turn away. Why? Back to the heart. Because God knows if you're coming to get a get out of hell free card, or if you're coming because you're genuinely broken against a holy and righteous God. That is what he saw. And I got to see God just melt this guy. And you know what? From a practical application, as speaking to the Christians in this room, when God and the Holy Spirit starts breaking somebody, offer them no comfort. Offer them no comfort. When they're done, then yeah, be there to hug them. Let God break them. Because they need to feel the truth and the weight as our, as our example here in Scripture. They need to feel the weight of the brokenness of what they've done against a holy and righteous God. And when God is breaking them, and I let God break him, and I wanted so bad to offer him comfort, but I didn't. And when he was done, I prayed with him, and he prayed. And man, this guy who just an hour or so ago was cussing us and hating us and mocking us was standing on a corner, soaking wet with tears, his arms around me and my arms around him, hugging him, knowing that there's a Savior that loves him. And I trust in God's sovereignty for his salvation. He understood that he has to come in that brokenness. That we understand, and, and many Christians, when they want to share their faith, they won't use the law. And for the life of me, I don't understand it. Why do you think Paul tells us in Galatians 3 and 24, the law is the schoolmaster that leads to Christ. He doesn't say the cookout is the schoolmaster that leads to Christ. This program is the schoolmaster that leads to Christ. This program, or this, or this, or that, or this, or that. He says the law is the schoolmaster that leads to Christ. Why? Because the law shows us that we can't do it. The law shows us we fall short. James says if you've broken one law, you've broken them all. And in Romans 3 and 19, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. We can't earn our way. We can't keep the law. We, must, we are justified by faith in the merit and work of Jesus Christ and what he did. Because, friends, here's, here's the nuts and bolts of it and an easy way to think of it. We are finite beings. Finite. We're going to die. You know that? Everyone in this room, within probably about 50 years, we're all going to be dead. Except maybe him. Hopefully not him. And what's going to happen for every one of us is the same. We're going to take our last breath and we're going to swing out into eternity. And we're going to embrace and see up close and personal Hebrews 9 and 27. For it's appointed to man to die once, then comes the judgment. 
We will stand there silent, not making our case. As God says the most wonderful words, the most horrifying words. He'll either say, welcome, well done, my good and faithful servant, welcomes you into the throne room. Or he looks at you and said, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I did not know you and cast you into hell. That's the reality with every one of us in this room have to deal with. That's the reality we have to see these people walking down the street and in our homes and in our workplace and in our wherever. We have, we have to see that. That we are finite beings, but guess what? Here's the problem. We've sinned against an infinite God. We don't have it in our bank account, friends. We don't have anything in our bank account to cover the offense of a holy and righteous, infinite God. We don't have it. But there was one who came who did. He was on a cross. His name was Jesus Christ. And he satisfies that debt. He pays for your debt, past, present, and future. He's paid for it. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. That's why we, we sing and we yell, Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy. And, and, and when we, we see, when, when, when Christ refers to the one being exalted, a synonym for that word is salvation. For if you humble yourself, putting your faith and trust in Christ, and turning from your ways, it's then and only then, in true surrender, that you'll find salvation. Because it's at that point you're going to find it's only in God we trust for our salvation. Amen? Let's pray.